Hi, Internet. My name is Jonathan Matos. And this is Melissa Matos. Welcome to Unboxing Story, where we explore narrative from the fringes. I'm going to apologize. Where we all get colds at the same yeah. time. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to apologize up front because I have a cold and I might sound a little nasally. And I'm and... recovering from the same cold, which <laughs> I passed on to John. <laughs> yeah, it was a family affair. Um, speaking of family affairs, <laughs> we're going to talk about... There's a lead-in for you. <laughs> a Good Man is Hard to Find by Flannery O'Connor. Um, we kind of going with the Southern Gothic angle of it, um, but we're also going to be talking about Gothic literature, and uh, I, I've, I found with this podcast, we've been critical of nihilistic, um, uh, be it literature or and or uh, like movies or, you know, all, all sorts of different media things. Um, but I think with this one, we're going to discuss what these these metaphors and these different the different parts of this story i'm also a little foggy so <laughs> i'm gonna try to work through this what these different things the characters and what they're saying wh whether it's trying to disguise uh, a more uh like i mean it, none of this none of this story is uplifting <laughs> no. um but i think what's interesting about gothic literature is that I, I associate gothic with uh, gothic romance, right? And what's interesting about how Poe wrote and um, uh, Emily Dickinson is kind of her poetry is very bleak as well. But that it, part of what I like about gothic literature is the contemplation and very serious subjects. Yes. And so, uh, like, just to give you a little insight, I read Hamlet when I was eight, <laughs> and shortly after my dad passed away, I did a video game, I I did a Twitch stream of a video game about uh, these two parents, it's called That, that Dragon Cancer, where uh, they're contemplating the death of their son and using all sorts of different imagery and stuff to go through it. So it's something that I gravitate towards in terms of like it, it doesn't. I don't shy away from things that deal with th those types of subjects, but and I, I, I like the tendency to like. And you were saying gothic romance, the in the old sense of the word romance, where they are idealizing these things as well, mm -hmm. and you're getting a very <clears throat> um, emotional and complete picture of the feeling, or like a like a aura, or I don't know what the word would be, ambiance maybe. Uh -huh of this thing. So like Poe definitely does that to you and right. other gothic stories. Mm. Usually it's gothic horror as well. Right. Um gives you this this like almost maybe idealized isn't the right word, but a very romantic in mm -hmm. the old sense of romantic romanticizing right. a thing. Uh-huh. Romanticizing death mm. and the gloominess of these things. Right. It's like pro prototypical emo mm. <laughs> stuff. Well, and I, I think that's a good place to to it's a good discussion to have because I think nowadays a lot of people associate goth with this aesthetic. And uh, what's interesting is that growing up, I never really, I didn't like things like, like one of the big icons of modern goth emo culture is the nightmare before Christmas. And a lot of people look at this like kind of punk and emo thing and, 
it it's kind of uh it's kind of seen as this kind of like to me it's a very surface level thing mm -hmm. and it's like making light of very morbid things right whereas if you look into classic gothic literature there's not really there might be um some sarcasm and some black humor in it but there is definitely gravity to it whereas something where like tim burton's creations have gone it seems like at the beginning like with um edward scissorhands he was tapping into something that was more emotional yeah and you could more identify with the character whereas um i was watching a Lindsay ellis video where she was uh talking about the different iterations of santa claus and she was saying like jack skellington's this character going through this midlife crisis and all of a sudden he comes to the realization like wait i'm I, he puts apparently other characters in the thing in harm's way or something like that but then he comes to this magical realization that like this was to my benefit <laughs> like that you know this this having this main character who's going through uh this emotional journey and um like they're somehow they were like he redeems himself and he doesn't really get to earn that redemption um Whereas a lot of what I like about Gothic literature is that it seems like suffering forces the character to either like admit that there there's this kind of imposter thing, like there there's something about themselves or about their thinking that they need to admit. Um, whereas like I feel like in this story there is this kind of thing where it's like she's being very hypocritical and she's kind of has to force to admit admit this thing. Um, but uh, what I think, um, my, my closing statement, I guess, <laughs> is that, like, there is still this idea of whether you gravitate towards, like, in this character, the misfit, this criminal, is kind of that um, romanticized idea of, like, death or um, the this, like, sense of danger and whether or not that speaks to you as, as true or, like, it's just kind of uh, <clears throat> like morbidity for the sake of morbidity, I think determines whether or not these types of stories resonate with you because you could be like, you know, you read this and I'm depressed and it doesn't do anything for right, you. Right. Cause I do like, I do like Gothic things. I like morbid things. I even like morbidly funny things on occasion. Like mm -hmm. I loved a series of unfortunate events, which I would argue is kind of Gothic. Mm -hmm. And stuff like that, where they are, but it, that is very much a humorous representation right, of that of instead of trope. necessarily the the more contemplative side. I, I would say the escape at De at Detamora, oh, where yes. so many of those characters are horrible. Are yeah, <laughs> there's there's not an uh, really a protagonist in the sense of there's not a, or there's not a hero. That's not a classic hero that represents good things really. I think the main character's intelligence is really his only redeeming thing. Um, but following these characters, uh, and and I think with, with this story, that since the grandmother is very, very much like an antagonist in the story, and the 
the only redeeming factor really is that you're seeing from her point of view. And so that forces you to put yourself in her shoes you, you or, can, or you can claim that's a redeeming factor if you want to. Not not a redeeming factor, <laughs> but it, it's it's it certainly forces you to be in to be with her. Yeah. And like that that to me is if you're gonna compare her to Matt, which uh, I can't really talk about Benicio del Toro because if you are a fan of him specifically, yeah, like we are, is, anything that he can't do any wrong. No, he's um, hilarious. But, and, and I, I think that there are certainly things in this story that are humorous. Like there's the line where she says, um, like, I, I guess I'm not going to tell them that the place I was thinking yeah, about was, was, in, in Tennessee. Florida, was in Tennessee or wherever. There, there's like black humorous things, but it, 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 it's, it kind of, that was the only, well, we'll get into it when we get to that. Yeah. Part. But anyway, <laughs> but I, j- just uh, to introduce people to our kind of priests, our bias for or against Gothic stuff, there are cert- we're certainly not against stories that focus on irredeemable characters. Um, but we're going to discuss as we go through the, the story, supposing that you've already read it, if you haven't, please just go and read a good man is hard to find. It's not very because, long and you can get yeah. it for free on the internet. Yeah. Uh, and <laughs> I, I was complaining earlier about how I, I went, I had this college class and I had to buy the complete stories of Flattery of Connor. And uh, I just had to read uh, the, what uh, the lame shall enter first, um, which I think was a, an interesting way to introduce me to Flannery O'Connor because it's, definitely dealing with uh this this kid that has a handicap and so that was a an interesting way for me to get into it as opposed to this where you know there's i don't there's not, not to presuppose to, to identify with this old lady um so the the plot of this story basically is that the uh grandmother is arguing with the uh her her son to go to tennessee rather than to go to florida, florida. Um, and her first like way of trying to ply her son to not take the whole family, which includes uh, his wife and two kids, a boy and a girl, is that there, there's this this criminal, the misfit, and I don't want to go where there's got this guy guy a, a loose, <coughs> um, <coughs> and uh, we kind of get different descriptions of the the whole family. Um, the first being the mother who has the head of a cabbage and the ears of a rabbit. <laughs> yeah, she's not described. None of the family is really described in very good terms. Mm-hmm. And, you know, obviously <clears throat> it bothers the grandmother that she wears pants because she brings that up multiple times. Uh-huh. Right. So, yeah, so this is like picture uh, the mother and from um, Everybody Loves Raymond. Yeah. <laughs> this is like <laughs> this is that grandma yeah this is not like your this is not your grandma's grandma um <laughs> this isn't uh like this is somebody that's like completely like nagging and stuff like that but as melissa's saying the mom is just kind of like a non-character she's just kind of there and responding only when she has to to different stuff um, because she's taking care of the baby, and so like that's kind of her characters that she's right. doing everything, you know, with the the baby. Um, John Wesley is the boy, and he's like, I- I'm not scared of the misfit and all this stuff. 
and uh, June stars the little girl, and she is constantly kind of sniping at people about stuff. And she like mentions the fact that the grandmother doesn't go, like is kind of inseparable from them. She has to go everywhere they go. Um, so you get the idea that th- these are all that this woman has. Yeah. Like she doesn't have anybody else to be with. It's not really clear whether um, her husband left or whether he's dead or whatever. Um, and uh, so th- she finally convinces them to go to Florida and she stows away the cat with them. He puts them in a basket. Um, and uh, we kind of get some stuff along the drive um, where she, she thinks it's really nice looking and the boy is just like, it's Georgia. Like, yeah. Like, what what, what are you wondering. crying like writing home about and so he's like she's like uh you know you should have respect for your state i remember a time when everybody had respect for their state and everything she's and all so about you, nostalgia yeah so you get this this the first introduction to this larger theme of everything was nicer at this time and uh th- she's possessed by this idea that there's this time that she lost and um part of this is very racist because i didn't realize this but she mentions that there's this little black boy as they're driving by who i'm assuming is from a very poor home because he doesn't have pants and she uses the word piccaninny which i didn't know the origin of but i looked it up and apparently this was uh, something that referred to images of young black children. Um, and I don't know, like people might be aware of the uh, little black Sambo character. Mm-hmm. It's that kind of thing. Uh, and she even mentions like, I could, I could make that, make, make that into a picture. So Flatter and Connor is well aware of this type of idea of a black person. Um, and it's it comes from uh, Portuguese, actually, which is interesting. Um, was interesting to me, um, and like it's a kind of like a West Indian. It's like a Creole thing that got passed down. Um, and I'm kind of looking up the thing. So it's uh, Wikipedia says uh, "picaninny" is in North American usage a racial slur, which refers to a depiction of a dark-skinned child. Of African descent, it's a pigeon word, uh, word form which may be derived from the Portuguese pequenino, uh, a diminutive version of the yeah, word pequeno little. Yeah. Uh, in modern sensibility, the term implies a caricature, which can be used in a derogatory or racist sense, according to the scholar Robin Bernstein, who describes the meaning in the context of the United States. The pequenini is characterized by three qualities: the figure is always juvenile, always of color. And always resistant, if not immune to pain. And I think that's kind of a hint that huh. her perception of this kid is not, oh, look at that poor kid whose parents aren't around. It's isn't that beautiful, right? Because that weird. reminds me of this southern idea, uh, this idea of the South that I have in my head of the past, and it being so great. Um, and she also references Gone with the Wind. 
Right. Uh, because she sees that there's this family grave uh, that's based in, in and around this plantation. And the dad asks, where is the plantation? She says, gone with the wind. Ha ha. Um, uh, the kids start acting a fool. <laughs> the boy is like kicking his dad's chair and they're all uh, bored and everything. So to make them stop be fussing, she brings up this uh, story of this guy whose initials were EAT and he would give her this uh, watermelon. And, and carved his initials in it. Yeah, <clears throat> and because she, because he did this, he left it out and uh, do you do you so how how much do you trust this person? Because I, I was trying to think about whether there were any clues in the text about whether you believe. Like, so she said that this black person came and took the watermelon. Uh, she doesn't use the term black person, obviously. No, being N word is is rife in this story. Yeah, um, but. Uh, and, and and how and so you're and so you're saying none of none of it. It's hard to say sympathize because obviously, like, well, like, yeah, obviously you're not necessarily supposed to sympathize with her uh-huh. or but identify I, with her really in the sense you know. And, uh-huh. But I, I'm going to compare this to something else when we get to the end because uh-huh. I, I I think there's other examples that do this better than what this story does. Okay. Um, but I feel nothing for this woman at all. Mm. I dislike her instantly uh-huh. and never like her right. at all. And it's not even like, cause sometimes you, you see despicable characters because they're trying to get you to, you know, acknowledge despicable parts of yourself. Uh-huh. Sometimes you just see despicable characters. Like we're watching the dead Amora, where you're like, yeah, he's not a good guy, but he's clever. Mm. So you can admire the, or right. enjoy There's the cleverness. Thing that you can kind of There's something that you can enjoy about the person or, or uh. root for even like, I was not rooting for her at all. Like right. ever. Right. And, <laughs> and I found myself, I knew I needed to read this twice in order to try to pull out some images and, and be more precise in terms of talking about it. But I didn't want to reread. No. Um, because, I, and and I'll compare it to something that that's non-spoilery in terms of like it helps us be chronological about it um, and not jump ahead. But uh, I, I was thinking about Shirley Jackson's The Lottery and how interesting it is how she sets up this kind of quaint town and slowly she reveals. So it's a very dramatically efficient right. story. Um, and what's difficult about some Gothic things like this is the, when, when specifically when you're having so many different transgressive characters, it's difficult to, it's difficult to get the reader to just and have a positive correlation with the words that you're writing down because uh, it you want there to be something to relieve the tension and and I think stories like that are a little bit more memorable and something that you want to go back to because uh, even though in the lottery the the entire town is it's infected like a- by this weird <laughs> yeah uh, what do you call like uh, I was gonna say paranormal what I mean is paranoia. Uh, or, or superstition. It's a very... <laughs> oh, pathological is what I'm trying <clears throat> yes, to think there of. you go. 
that's become this pathological society, but the way that to eke in all those things that make it the way it is, uh, is a little bit more easy to stomach. And, and especially, you know, I think both of us enjoy that, um, like that, the, the nature of a story that can make its point in such a more, uh, uh, effective way on a larger scale. Whereas with something like this, you don't want to get into the details of it because it was unpleasant to read it at the first glance. Right. There's nothing to really make you want to pick out. It's like, it's like, uh, like those old, um, medieval paintings of hell. Yeah. Like, when, it's like a Bosch painting. When you, there's a you, professor. You don't want to look any closer at this picture. When there's a medieval professor who can tell you like, well, isn't it interesting that the, you know, um, this person is biting this person's head off as opposed to their arm or something like yeah. that. And like, knows what the meaning of all that would be. And there's like, well, because this figure has this on, he's representing this kind of death and blah. And it's like, I don't want to look close enough at this picture to figure that out. Right. <laughs> this whole thing is weirding me out. I'm going to be over there. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, yeah. So there are those, those uh, things about this narrator that make her untrustworthy, unsympathetic. So the one thing I did untrust from the beginning and was not expecting is I thought she was making up the crap about the misfit because at uh, that point I knew she was going to say anything she could to not have to go to Florida. Right. And so I was just like, okay, now she's just pulling stuff out of nowhere. Uh, Obviously that's nonsense. Right. And that, that's an interesting way to uh, interpret what was being done there because I, I, I hadn't read the story before, but I discovered it through strip lit. Um, and I, I wanted to read another Flannery and Connor to see how it, compared and contrasted with the other one. Um, what's interesting about that about that one, the Blame Shawinter first, the other one I read, uh, was there was a very specific character who seems unsympathetic, and his son seems much more um, like starry-eyed and, and, and innocent. Um, so it's interesting to see her do one where like you don't like anybody at the story. Um now I I was trying to think about the they they go to this way station, and um, it's it's interesting to me because there's a monkey tied up, and then immediately after you get Red Sammy Butts, who's the owner of the place, and I was wondering whether they were trying she was trying to do some weird thing because it was since we've been talking about black caricatures. I was wondering if she was trying to make it seem like, no, this guy's really the monkey because I, I've thought of baboon. Right. If, if he has a, if it's red, butt. <laughs> um, but what's interesting about his character is that it, it's again, exploring that idea of, is he a good man? Because we get to, he has the line, a good man is hard to find. And uh, another interesting image with him is that he, instead of, he has fleas, apparently, but he's biting the fleas. And so it's flea-bitten kind of has a weird double meaning there. Um, but I didn't really get anything specific from him or his wife. I wasn't really pulling anything like what what the suggestion was of him was about. supposed to be foreshadowing how the grandmother assesses what a good man is. Okay. Because... 
she goes on to, she's <clears throat> calling him a good man for having been fleeced uh-huh. by these morons that took gas uh-huh. and didn't pay him. Right. So basically anybody who has manners the way she remembers and has the right background or, mm-hmm. you know, knows their place, whatever the old school version of what a good man would look like mm-hmm. is what she's going by. And even a weird warped version of that, because I'm pretty sure nobody would think you're a good man just for getting fleeced uh-huh. and whining about it. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, that, that was kind of <clears throat> interesting, the interaction with him. Um, and then the June star starts dancing and she can't take a compliment because the uh, red butts wife, um, is like, you know, aren't you the cutest thing? And then she makes a joke. Like, I wish you would be one of my kids. And she's like, I wouldn't want to live in this dump. Um, and, uh, we kind of like, pretty easily move on from that uh, to the uh, house with the silver hidden in it. This other kind of manifestation of this woman's imagination. We don't know whether this really exists or... But didn't it say she was lying? Well, it's, I'm pretty sure it says something like she wishes it was true. Well, she, I the think silver she, part. Oh, okay. Like yeah, the I house wasn't... existed, but I think she purposely made up the story about the money. Oh, gotcha. Okay. To get them to go over there. Yeah, it's confusing because you you're not sure whether she's wishing uh, that it was uh, the truth. It's it's kind of the it's very ambiguous. Elements are, she's, yeah, she's not exactly on top of her game. Uh-huh. Um, and then I thought it, I thought it might have been an interesting metaphor because. She, you're right. She's in the middle of this kind of lie that, like, once they get to this house, there's going to be silver in it, and then um, she uh, is like, also, there's the other lie is that she's like, wait, but that was in uh, Tennessee. Tennessee, wasn't in Florida or wherever they are, right? Georgia. Um, so that that's kind of the lie, but then they turn and they crash. And it's the the cat that was in the basket comes out, and what I thought maybe that was like the cat's out of the bag, right? Thing, um. So that was an interesting, uh, an interesting maybe little morbid humor thing going on. Um, then uh, I thought it was interesting that there might be a comparison between the grandma who's like maybe I'm injured, and so my son won't be as angry at me. Versus the mom who Valerie kind of writes uh, only has a broken shoulder. Yeah. I was like, that's like the most painful break to get. What are you right. talking about? Only has a broken shoulder and is bleeding. Wasn't she bleeding? Uh-huh. And right, had the baby with that her. First and like then... that is the most panicky thing ever. The mom with a new baby that just went through a car accident and the mom went through the freaking window. Right. Like it wasn't just, oh, she got out of the car and was hurt. Like she went through glass. Right. <laughs> so, Yeah. Another reason to hate grandma. Uh-huh. Um, and the kids are delighted. That's a direct quote yes. of, of the accident. And they won't shut up about it. They keep saying, an we were an accident, but nobody died. Yeah. <laughs> Plus, um, those kids so bad. So the, uh, it, there's, the, like I mentioned before, she has that line about 
he's like after the accident, she's like, I, 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 she decided it was best not to tell them, and so that kind of contrast, the the contrast of the broken shoulder is another kind of morbidly funny line, and then that is just kind of like, well, I guess it's best I don't tell them that I lied about them, uh, about it, um, and then uh, the um, there's this guys that we don't know right away who they are, um, who uh, are driving what they call a hearse-like vehicle. And so that, what, immediately in my mind, mean like, is this death for them? And I was looking this time, rereading it, trying to see if maybe they all died to begin with, and this was all, like, her dying thoughts, maybe? That's that's well, the thing, but I didn't, I, I'm not saying that's what it is, but I was looking... To see after, if it was. to see if maybe if, if that's what it is, because I know I've heard that as an, an uh, uh, people say that about um, Majora's Mask. Oh, yeah. Uh, it's a Nintendo game that's in the Legend of Zelda universe um, about it maybe being because the the different lands that he goes to might represent the stages of grief. Oh. Um, and so because it's so much more macabre than <laughs> the other ones, they thought maybe it was a version where he died in the one game and then this is the afterlife. Um, but uh, I thought it was interesting because Flattery and Connor doesn't mention the gun right away, but it's through John Wesley's perspective that we see it's like, wait, what are you going to do with that gun? And I thought that was an interesting way to do it. Um, then uh, Grandma recognizes the misfit, and that's how we get, like, oh, this is the misfit. Um, although I, I think we're probably right away assuming yeah. because based on how they're dressed, uh, that they're, you know, mob members or, or runaway, or, runaway prisoners. Right. Um, then uh, I, I was also trying to look at the different colors and animal mentions um, because we get that in contrast with her, the main characters or the character perspectives uh, of the grandmothers, her eyes are brown, but her son's eyes are blue. And, uh, her, she, he has a bunch of parrots on his shirt, and the shirt is yellow. But the parrots, uh, I forget. I, I think the parrots are blue. I think so. Um, and uh, immediately in my mind, if nothing else, I hate this character because he doesn't try at least to fight these guys. Um, and and I think throughout the thing, I think we're supposed to see how. Uh, I I was thinking maybe parrot is. Uh, a metaphor for the fact that like he's doing whatever his mother wants him to do and uh, I think it's it's a sign of uh, weakness maybe for that character specifically that throughout this whole thing she's trying to convince him to do things and he's like always making that concession rather than taking more of a, a leadership role and like drawing the line somewhere with something that she wants to do because even before uh so the uh misfit tells one of his guys to take the uh bailey and his son you know out to pasture literally yeah and all he could say to his mother is wait on me like right like he's coming back like right anyway yeah we'll we'll, we'll get into it uh and then we, uh, we start to get this trope of the smooth criminal (laughs) <laughs> to what I put down. Uh, but it, it's interesting to me that he's always talking about his father and um, 
the the what his father well like he's his father wasn't a criminal per se but i think what we're getting from him in this kind of final scene is that it's a lot about pu- punishment fitting the crime mm-hmm. and so it's interesting that his father apparently was a criminal but talked his way out of, of stuff yeah. consequences um and there's banter about like prayer and stuff and she asks him do you pray and he immediately is like no and then you hear bailey and his son get shot um he mentions the misfit mentions i'm a, i was in the army and on the railroad and farming that i just did something i don't remember what it was but i got put away for it because they had papers on me right they had papers on him so there's yeah there's that this documentation that's kind of ethereal to him at least and, and obviously we're also from my reading supposed to not trust him at all about whatever he says either um but that's what makes their kind of contrasting things interesting to me is that since they're both irredeemable, I don't think we're supposed to necessarily glean that like one of them has some kind of like answer to the big problem that the story presents. Um, But it's interesting to me that, uh, you know, so she, she's having all these things of like, I know that you're a good man and trying to convince him that he isn't the type of person who would shoot her whole family. Um, And she talks about, she says like prayers like help. And that's kind of like the, the thing that prayers equated to is that like Jesus can help you. Um, Oh, so uh, earlier on, he, he talked about how his father said he's like a dog. And so I thought that was another uh, like correlation is like, he's like a dog, but then he takes the bird shirt so I, I don't know if there was something there but he gets the shirt from the uh dad corpse uh the he ne- he never does I, until the end he never does anything specifically violent himself but he takes the spoils of it like he, he's basically you know takes the dad's the, the dead dad shirt <clears throat> because he's shirtless um we get the the, the baby is still asleep um, or I somehow got sleep, even though got. I thought it was interesting because you would think that all this would. I'm wondering if the baby was dead. Hmm. Yeah, that might that might. And have been. the grandmother's just telling herself it's sleep. Oh, uh, right. Because like at this point, I'm telling you, she's like the very self deluded. Uh huh. And and because it's third person limited, you don't know if some of it is just how she's perceiving things or or what. Um. Then uh, the June star gets her last two, um, two cents out. Says that the guy that's about to murder her is looks like a pig. Um, and that this is where we get more explicit religious stuff because uh, the misfit states the reason why he wants to be called a misfit is but the punishment doesn't fit the crime. He compares himself to Jesus because he's saying the punishment didn't fit his crime, even though I have my crime because of all these papers. Um, then we we actually get a animal correlation with the grandmother finally because she says it says she looked like a thirsty hen. Um, and then we get another thing from the misfit because he says Jesus shouldn't have raised the dead, 
But then he kind of contradicts himself but because he says, if you believe Jesus d- did what he said he did, uh, which is interesting because Jesus didn't write the Gospels. Um, if you believe what Jesus said he did, you should sacrifice everything. But if you don't, you should make what I kind of equate to as hell on earth. Like, just be mean to people. And he says that's actually what gives him joy is meanness. Uh, and I thought that that was more like a commentary on what the family's been doing this whole time is just be mean to each other, be mean to other people. Um, so that part of it, I think, rings true because we have these other more normal, I, I guess, run-of-the-mill characters who are exacting the same kind of bitterness on each other that this misfit has. Um, but at the same time, at the end, the misfit like admits that he's not really happy doing any of this because uh, he says there's really no joy in life or whatever. Um, so I- I'm going to let you vent a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So. Oh, b- before then, I think we should take a, l- a short break um, to do our ad reads and then we'll be back into uh, t- uh, more of our opinion and reactions to uh, the things aside from the, the details that I mentioned. So we'll see you after the bump. So yeah, before the jump, the, the, the bump, the jump, the I, bump. I don't even know. I don't understand any of your tech terms. None of it. <laughs> I I'm think just like, oh, we're be, reading ads now. Okay. I think bump might be uh, more video related. Okay. Um, break. For the break. Break, yeah, that's a good... Call it a break, not a bump, because I don't understand what you mean by bump. Uh, so, yeah, I, I like... I, you, you had a, a little bit more... Well, being yeah, sick I means rant. that I don't, I don't get a visceral, visceral reaction to anything. Because, <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, yeah, you had a little bit more visceral reaction, so I'd like you yes, to, it was, to say your piece. As I said, I do enjoy gothic stories. I like looking at macabre things mm-hmm. in the contemplative kind of way or a humorous kind of way. But this, to me, wasn't just macabre. This was just, like, horrible people doing horrible things, uh-huh. right? Uh-huh. Like, and like you were saying, we need dragons for that to work. Like, I'll watch Game of Thrones because there's dragons and a really cool dwarf and some other stuff that's actually interesting uh-huh. going on. This had none of that for me. Mm-hmm. Like, there was nothing in this that I was interested in seeing mm-hmm. any further about. Um, and I was going to compare it to Psycho. Mm-hmm. Because in Psycho, you're following, if you haven't watched it, there are spoilers for this, so don't (laughs) jump ahead a little bit or something. Um, In Psycho, you're following a person who's not exactly a good person at the beginning of that. She's a thief, (laughs) and she takes all this money and runs. But she's an interesting person. You're like, why is she doing this? She has reasons why she's stealing the money, and she's (sighs) doing it in an interesting way, and blah, blah, blah. And then halfway through the thing, you get blindsided because she gets killed by (laughs) the Psycho dude in the hotel (laughs) but the psycho dude in the hotel is interesting he's terrifying and it's very horror related so you're like getting this built-up sense of suspense and terror and whatever because this crazy interesting psycho person is doing all this stuff Uh and that works for me because they're interesting and because there is that tense suspense going on and because of the way the story is told Mm. this had no suspense for me Mm. like really this was just Okay, they got well. The car accident was a little bit exciting, but even that wasn't dealt with very suspensefully. It was just, oh my god, this is horrible. And then the bad guys show up, and it's like, okay, great, now they're all going to get shot. Uh-huh. Like it was just not. 
There was no build up to me. Right. It was all just straight downhill. Yeah. And that was not gripping to me at all. Right. Um, so yeah, I think Psycho does it better. Uh. Uh, there's a lot of other grim dark things even that do it better. Um, and then I don't know if you want me to go into the other thing that made me get it. So I was like, well, maybe I'm missing something. Maybe there's imagery or something that I'm not catching on to. Like you picked out all the stuff about the animals and whatever. And I'm like, I'm not going digging through this thing to find this stuff. Like, mm. so let me go find the spark notes. Right. So mm. I went and read the spark notes and it made me even more angry because other than the discussion, like I was looking at the themes, right. That was the first section I read. And there's a whole thing about, uh, the elusive definition of a good man. Okay, that part I got, because that was really obvious that they were talking about what does it mean to be a good man, and obviously she had a very screwed up version of that, and blah, blah, blah. Mm. And then it goes off on the unlikely recipients of grace. Mm. And I'm like, there is no grace in this story. Like, what are you talking about? Because I didn't see any grace in this story. Everything was just awfulness everywhere. Mm-hmm. So the one, the two examples that they are claiming are Uh, moments of grace is one when the grandmother starts going off about the misfit being her son, Mm. that she is coming to some lucid realization that they are both human beings and in the same condition. And you poor baby that all this stuff happened to you. Mm -hmm. I'm going to finally commiserate with another human being as opposed to thinking I'm better than everybody. Mm -hmm. I'm like, that is not what's happening there. She's panicking. She knows she's about to die and she's just freaking out. Mm -hmm. That is all that's happening. Either she's freaking out about she just realized her son got shot mm-hmm. or or like trying to desperately get this guy not to shoot her. But whatever mm-hmm. it is, it's out of desperation. It has nothing to do with grace to me there at mm-hmm. all. And then the other thing they're claiming is um, the misfits statement at the end that there's no pleasure in killing these people. Mm-hmm. I'm like, how is that grace, though? That's not really grace just because you realize there's no pleasure in this. He did it anyway. Mm-hmm. Like, grace to me means it does something to you and you make a choice, Mm -hmm. you know, something given to you to make you better, not something like you get to see how terrible you are. Mm -hmm. That's not grace to me. Right. Well, I think that uh, what's what's interesting about the uh, gothic format of uh, dealing with uh, grace is that how how it's structured is kind of like when when we were watching – Crimson Peak, and it's interesting how they push the main guy character that Tom Hiddleston plays, who is just as, uh, I think, to blame for all the murders happening, Um, but in contrast with how you see his sister controlling him. Mm Mm-hmm. I think it makes him a little bit more sympathetic to the viewer and uh, you don't, you get the idea that he's not the one that's, you know, despite his cowardice for not stopping his sister from doing what she does. It's kind of like he is a, a a victim in some way. Um, And so a lot of what I think this more Gothic type of uh, literature does is it's very unforgiving in terms of, how it shows human nature and sometimes it it will do that little, like there's a glimpse of something of this character forced to do forced to change or forced to make some kind of realization, but it's not as dramatically satisfying, 
because you with with our idea of like can I really trust this narrator they're doing something that is hypocritical because it completely contradicts everything they've done right up to that like, point and to me the whole the only really resonating statement in the story was the only way this woman would have been good is if she had had a get shot every day of her life mm -hmm. because that is the only time she finally chose to do something nice was when she had a gun pointed at her mm -hmm. and to me that is not grace that is cowardice to the highest degree because at that point you're doing whatever it takes not right. to get shot and that's the only reason you're doing it mm -hmm. that is not to me a graceful motivation that is a very selfish motivation right um but yeah but i as somebody who's written uh a character like this in terms of they say a lot of things that they claim to believe, but it's only when they have to face consequences of the things that they've done to that, that you actually may may or may not believe. Because I, I have, at the end of Cain and Abel, I have a, uh, a moment where the character is forced to explain to a child their actions, his actions. And so you you believe because you, you might believe what he's saying because... He's been forced to that point, but there were people that read it that couldn't stomach any of the characters. And so it's a very difficult thing. And that that's part of what uh, at, at least influences me to continue to explore the genre, even though it's something that's not my favorite in, in any way. Um, is well, I mean, to, like I could see I'm not I'm not arguing that I wouldn't believe. So like at the at the end of your book where he is. He is coming to a realization about himself. Mm -hmm. Like, I do think the misfit's coming to a realization about himself at the end. Right. And saying how, well, I used to think this was pleasurable, but mm -hmm. it's not. Right. But that still, to me, doesn't, doesn't equal grace. It doesn't equal something good. Just because you know that you're despicable doesn't mean you're going to do anything about it. Mm. Doesn't mean that he didn't still decide to do despicable things. People right. do that all the time. They realize, I do that a lot. I'm a... I'm very like, you know, when people who struggle with depression, especially or anxiety mm -hmm. are very much into beating themselves up about, Oh, I do this thing and I did it again and blah, uh -huh. but you don't change right. <laughs> that, that in and of itself is not what changes you. Mm -hmm. So I don't consider that in and of itself. Right. I mean, it can lead to grace if that happens later, uh -huh. but that in and of itself is not right. some big, huge epiphany. Right. Everybody's terrible and everybody has terrible things about themselves that they can realize at some point. Mm -hmm. But yeah, the, at, from what the Strickland channel talks about with As I Lay Dying, it's very similar in the sense that there, you you often in Southern Gothic get this uh, this array of characters, and I I think that a lot of their history leads to this very woe is me and like aren't we all evil and going to hell in a handbasket and some of the uh, illusions and um, like the imagery and stuff make it this kind of more capital R romantic type of exploration of those things. But especially as Northerners, like the the lack of sympathy runs deep for for that for like the racism and this uh, like generational problem uh, pro problematic like way that they're depicting society. So it's very, uh, I think Flannery Connor is aware of that. And I know like it's, it's not, uh, 
it's it's not, it's not a fault of hers that she's. It, I think it's a strength of her writing that she recognizes all these different flaws in Southern society, and that she's not. Um, I think it's a, a genuine representation of a of deeper truth in those ways, um, but like you're saying, it's it's very difficult to when you're not. Uh, it, it's it's difficult to see that as a representation of uh, grace and not completely not believe the the narrator and 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 yeah not want there to be some kind of representation of. Grace as some, a something powerful influence, anything like right to change to which, change. Person. And I mean, to some extent, okay, I can understand. Maybe I'm just that, uh, but the, ticked at the, at the reviewer who, the poor person who wrote that Sparknote thing. Because <laughs> um, if if the point is to just give people a picture of the horribleness of the culture, I mean, I think she did that fine. <laughs> like yes, but that but that culture a- sucks, but. I, I don't know. I mean, you, in- you, I, it, you don't have to like it, but, <laughs> but what, but what I mean is that the telling a tragic story, um, I, I wasn't able to write Cain and Abel without there being somebody that changes because I know that for as much as there are hypocrites in the church and, um, and as much as the ethos of the, uh, the Seven Deadly Sins series is about exploring de- depravity and, and uh, lack of willpower and lack of courage and things like that. I needed there to be somebody that was contrasting the character that was uh, succumbing to some kind of uh, inter- like succumbing to some kind of internal uh, d- demonics like uh, malaise <laughs> um, <laughs> And so I think I, I don't, because what, what, what works to me about criticism of certain things, like, for example, uh, there was a video I watched recently uh, that, um, I forget his name, but his uh, YouTube channel is, um, the, uh, I can't remember that now either, um, but I'll, I'll look it up real quick, but the, there were a bunch of people after Annihilation came out that were concerned with the aliens as in the context of like every other type of invasion story and like explaining what the mystery of whether the main character at the end is a uh, alien or not or like different things like that. And there was somebody that did um, folding ideas. That's the name of the channel. Um, he did a video about like decoding the metaphor inside it. And he was saying that all these other videos about it were this kind of anti-intellectual argument about it and trying to, trying to say that it's, uh, try, trying to belittle the nuance of the thing and, um, not stressing enough what the different things meant inside of it. So I have kind of a chip on my shoulder about how um, stories like this are taken. And part of it is because I believe there's a lot of tragic figures in the Bible that are, have that come to an end that is completely ignorant of grace 
and that not enough readers are used to that being an educational thing that shows them like this is what it looks like when somebody completely rejects race and um there's there's so many representations in christian fiction of this is a hero that i can latch on to that is a good example of how to live and how to believe and there aren't as many depictions of uh somebody that is completely um a coward and and uh they're hard to do well Right, and and I think that I have, that's the. That's I have the, seen some that we have enjoyed, like the villains that you love to hate. Well, not yeah. even those, because some of them are just slick because they're funny. <laughs> but like, <clears throat> this is, so like in Colony, the guy in Colony that was running. R.I.P. Colony. Yeah, I missed that show. <laughs> anyway, the guy that was running, the colony that they were in, <sighs> was fantastic at that. Like, he was totally irredeemable. That guy was never not going to be a sniveling, selfish guy right. who was trying to do whatever he could to get into power there. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, I couldn't hate him, hate him. Like, I hated him because, obviously, he was the villain. Mm-hmm. But he was the villain. Like, right. he wasn't the people we were following in the story. Right. You know? And, like, there were times when the heroes were getting fooled by him or were going to end up turning into him. But they decided not to because they were sticking together with the family or whatever. There was, there was an ideal that was over that. Mm-hmm. And I think the reason that the, the, those characters in the Bible can be instructional is because they are placed beside people that choose grace. Mm-hmm. But if all that you're seeing is the way down, mm-hmm. it's just so depressing. Like yeah. it's like, and I, and I can understand maybe it's, it's probably more personal preference necessarily than, than an argument with the fact that she shouldn't have written this story or something, mm. but, but that's, I think that's the thing is that uh, that's the thing that I think folding ideas with being critical of was more that there, there, there are a lot of critics that go on the surface level because they don't want to delve into the meaning of what's underneath of it. And there's a lot of criticism of these things that don't go further than that. And I think I, I trust when you were saying that you hated it, I trusted you as a reader to be able to talk about it uh, more in depth than just well, this was a sucky story. Right, and 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 you're and you're more of an educated reader than I think the the casual critic uh, that's only looking for this the surface level elements of it. And I knew that you you're entitled, as any reader is, to um, not feel compelled by the writing to delve into symbols that only uh turn you off because like you you're i think you're allowed and and this is part of why uh it's been difficult to look at certain critics because just because something is nuanced doesn't mean that it's good right and so what you get at a lot of these southern gothic pieces is a part of why it appeals to me as well is that i am unaware of the different cultural things that uh, the, the cultural landscape down there. And so rather than just seeing the N word on there and thinking, I don't want to read these types of stories. Um, I am, am interested in exploring the different um, levels of grace and uh, 
a lot of because the the you know um, amount of churches that they have per capita down there, um, you do get a lot of explorations of how this society that has institutionalized racism and uh, on a lot of cases sexism and things like that. Uh, it is interesting to get for me as a reader to get into those topics and see how um, you know the the uh, the hand of grace is is and and I think Flannery O'Connor is a unique Christian writer in that uh, she is aware of all the things that are wrong in the society that she's grew up in. Um, and is doing a lot of commentary on that that couldn't have been easy for other southern people around her to read, um, and and uh, yet is kind of unforgiving in her analysis of it. And I we we had the conversation about how like she writes uh, women in the fifties a lot like how men wrote, wrote <laughs> women them, in the 50s. but you trust her in being a woman. I trust her assessment a little bit more, right? Because. Uh, so many men, you know, they go through a bad divorce and all of a sudden all their female characters are terrible. Like I was joking about that with the, uh, but we did a, a random video video cast on our Patreon about, um, Oh yeah. The pod people. The pod, the age of the body snatchers. <laughs> Cause it seemed like this guy went through a divorce and all of a sudden he can't trust anybody. And that that's the big underlying psychological thing that he was going through. Um, but it, it's interesting, and I think there's a lot of nuance within the, the story. But your your uh, your interest will vary depending on whether you need, as a reader, to see some kind of standard of behavior. <laughs> um, and so, uh, I I would recommend that uh, you <clears throat> explore Gothic literature. And I have a quick question before we wrap up. Uh-huh. Do you think, because you're talking about, you know, using nuance, using, uh, and, and her writing this stuff in a society that probably would not have been happy to have that thrown at them. Mm. Um, in the novel I'm working on, Glade the Bard, mm. there is, you know, stuff about racism. There's stuff about religion and things like that. But obviously it's in a fantasy world, so it's not right. necessarily picking on a particular real world one. Mm. Do you think there is value in doing that? Because like, I know recently there was that Bright movie that came out that was very similar. Like This is obviously about race relations, even though it's set with fantasy mm. characters. Do you think that there is a benefit to do it that way? Do you think that hurt it? Do you think that mm. uh, that has the same impact or not? Like. If this had been a fantasy story where instead of, you know, mm-hmm. yeah, like, well, I, I, <laughs> them getting rolled up on by the guys for a risky from prison, like if they were uh, just a bunch of travelers that got attacked by, right. you know, orcs on the road, like would this have felt the same? Right. Well, I, I think personally, like to compare it again to the Shirley Jackson example was that it certainly helps because like there's not many people out there whistling the tune of Southern Gothic, like we're, I, I'm, my mind went to whistling, but singing its praises. So obviously it's not something that uh, has become something that lasts as opposed to more general stories like that, where there's um, some kind of allegorical thing, because it's not getting so granular about 
you know, the, the details. Um, right. Because this obviously, I think, only works set in what used to be the glorious South and is no longer. Right. Like, I don't know that you could have set that up in a fantasy world without having to go into a whole lot of background. Mm. But like the benefit of, you know, real world settings is everybody knows what you're talking about instantly because they know where that is. Mm -hmm. Um, But yeah, there's, it's not as easy to draw other conclusions from this one as it is from something more allegorical or or Mm -hmm. symbolic, I guess. So there's that. Okay. Yeah. Um, And uh, the, Gothic genre is certainly something that I'm not an expert in, but I tweeted out the picture of my Raven shirt because Edgar Allan Poe is certainly somebody that has worked in with morbid topics, but some it gets you really to feel for this main character. And a, a lot of it probably is also for us as readers, the fact that um, there's, there's a larger variety, I think with him where, there are uh, characters certainly that uh, are depressed and are, um, you know, uh, do, like there's, you know, everything from murderers to, um, you know, uh, people that are internally grieving about something. Um, but it seems like a lot of Flannery Connor stuff from the two short stories I've read, there are very transgressive, harsh characters that are really irredeemable and don't get redeemed through the thing. And so there's that, there's that element of a tragic story where you're supposed to get catharsis from the thing. And this was not really a cathartic story. It was, and, and that, that's another criticism I would level against, against it is the, um, when you are one note with the whole thing, then it, it, it there's nothing to, uh, really have that release which is often associated with catharsis um it's it's literally just this these people are like this and uh there might be i like there's it's structured in the sense that there's a beginning a middle and an end um and so you do see that there's a dramatic structure but it's not uh releasing in the same way that i think a pose work is always um and I, I don't know if you, you can tell me whether you think that that's uh, her being female has anything to do with that. Cause I, I feel like from reading Emily Dickens, poetry, Dickens poetry, there seems to be a lot of just one, like I'm sad <laughs> or like, but see poetry is different poetry to me. Anyway, mm. poetry doesn't necessarily have to give you a release uh-huh. to me. Poetry is more like modern art where you're uh, just there right. to get a feeling from it. So to me, if poetry makes you feel what the person's trying to get across, mm-hmm. then it has succeeded. Yes. What I think disappointed me with, with, or in general, not just this story, but there are a lot of short stories, especially now, that try to do the same thing, where they're just leaving you this feeling. And I guess, I mean, Poe does that too, that not all of his things give you a release. Sometimes it's just, mm-hmm. okay, that was weird. And it still gives me that whole, I'm not happy because I didn't get a release at the end of this thing. Mm. To me, prose should do that for you. Uh-huh. Right. You should have the, because I, I like catharsis like a lot. So uh-huh. <laughs> that's what I read things for. Right. Um, <clears throat> so I always find it disappointing when there isn't there right. at the end of a story. Yeah. 
yeah, it, it, it's certainly something I can identify with. Um, and that, as you said, it's very difficult to do. Um, but, uh, like, uh, Annabelle Lee, I think, is very, uh, uh, one of Poe's poems, and I, I posted it on our Twitter. Um, I, I liked how in Holes it was kind of contrasted with, um, or it was presented alongside the story of Kate and Sam, who, if you haven't seen Holes, um, they, they fall in love. It's the first picturesque thing of him working on the schoolhouse for her. And, uh, but it's that capital R romantic being put alongside the actual romantic. And, and I mean, Adam Ali is it's a romantic poem in that sense too. Yeah. Um, but there, Poe wrote a lot about death in a very like, as if it was a friend type thing. And, uh, like I, that's kind of the the picture of the raven too, um, but uh, I don't know necessarily where I was going with that. <laughs> but uh, but um, I think I think in in that story, in the Annabelle Lee story and the Raven story, there is some kind of uh, more traditional dramatic thing going on where it seems like there is some kind of acceptance. Yeah. And well, not necessarily. Because but the, it comes to a climax and then comes off of one. Like this didn't feel to me like it came off of a climax. There was no build up and then over the hill and down. Like it uh-huh. just flatlined the whole way. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm just like, yeah. I need something, people. Come on. Now, now uh, another thing before we wrap up, I'll compare it to is that uh, Hemingway, as I've been reading his stuff is often uh, you, you can tell that they, that he was depressed and that a lot of his characters are very happily going off this mortal coil. Um, and But what's interesting about it is that I find his stuff a lot more satisfying than I did Planner O'Connor's uh, two short stories that I read. Um, and so it, it, I would uh, certainly read his stuff and, and contrast if you're uh, reading Flannery O'Connor. Um, and I, I, I certainly wouldn't, I would say that like, she certainly does do a lot in terms of her images and things. And, and there's, there's, uh, certainly a mastery of, um, the, the writing itself. It's not an ineffective story because I think part of what might have make it effective is that it did make you so angry about it. Um, as opposed to you just, yeah, just feel don't nothing. feel anything to yeah. it. Um, but if, if I were to compare it, like we read the snows of Kilimanjaro that we did an episode on that, if you want to listen to that it. That was also sad, but. But yeah, there it shows that it's not like with both of us, the surface level of it, uh, or, or the, yeah, the surface level feeling that you get of the, of the depression and the despair of the characters. Um, you certainly think, think of Hemingway as being, uh, somebody that that draws catharsis from the reader as opposed to a, a lot of Flannery O'Connor's work which is much more one note um so the, the please listen to that episode as well because uh Hemingway was was somebody that uh did have a lot of uh variety in the um different landscapes that he draws these images from but uh because he's working like in a wider thing from just than just how he grew up, 
it, it is a lot more universal in, in I think how you can uh, see you know uh, the different themes that he's tackling in the different you know you can you can tell that it's definitely the same person but uh, it's not simply uh, you know one perspective in terms of because he led, led, led such a life that he was able to go all over the place and um, you know it's it, He's like at every turn. There's depression. Yeah, um, <laughs> and I'm still. Uh, so yeah, so it, definitely not an easy story to read. It, I I would warn you if you weren't going to get into it, how, um, you know, hard it is. What we're saying, how how difficult of a read it is, uh, and uh, I, I'm certainly not the person that uh, I think on the other extreme, whereas some people just go over the surface level of their reading. I think that there is a romanticism of something of stories like this that are depression depressing as the pinnacle of high art uh and and that you'll you'll come across readers that can only uh educate themselves about reading on stories that are just as desperate as they are that does not mean it's a good story just because you put in this pseudo intellectual element Neither does it make it a good story if you put in, you know, edgy characters or things that you think push the envelope. You still need to write a good story. Right. <laughs> Just uh, saying. <laughs> so uh, thanks for <coughs> listening, everybody. Uh, you can write us at unboxingstorypodcast at gmail.com if you want to be in touch about Southern Gothic or any of the other things that we mentioned. Um you can also support us at patreon.com slash thinkoutsidethebox. We have a uh, special offer right now for uh, Spider John stickers <laughs> um, where you can put it on your laptop or inside your locker, wherever you put your stickers. <laughs> uh, so is there any final thoughts before we wrap up? Nope. All right, well, thanks again for listening, and we'll talk to you later. Bye.